Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session 6 of Greatest Stories Under Told, a new weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. This sixth installment is entitled, The Murder of the Levite's Concubine, and all scripture is taken from the New International Version. So go with me to the time in Israel's history when they were ruled by judges. They have come back from slavery in Egypt. They have conquered the land of Canaan. And now for this 400-year period, they don't have a king yet. This was probably a hundred years or so into it, maybe around 1325 B.C. And we are now in Judges 19. This story takes three chapters, takes you to the end of the book of Judges, but the stories there are not exactly in chronological order. And we will begin with verse 1 of chapter 19. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. That was south. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. So, so far, so good. We're not sure from the text whether when she was unfaithful to him, it meant that she had affairs or whether all she did was simply return home to her father. But he decided after a period of time that he wanted his marriage to work and he was going to go and persuade her to return home. And he was very warmly welcomed and greeted, very apparently well-liked by his father-in-law, and he spends three days with him and now he's ready to go. On the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the girl's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the girl's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. So Jerusalem is north of Bethlehem, and it's, of course, in between Bethlehem, where they were, and Ephraim, which is their destination. But at that time, Jerusalem was not exactly an Israelite community. It was in the middle of the conquered Canaan, but it was still full of people who were called Jebusites. And, of course, the city's name was Jebus. 
So now we're in verse 11. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went in and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. That was in an era and in a culture where it was very, very important to be hospitable. And people would expect to be taken in as strangers into the homes of the people of a community if they needed lodging. But this place, which was supposedly friendly, it was an Israelite city, Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin, did not seem to have anyone who was willing to take them in. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim who was living in Gibeah, the men of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We're on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his house. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. So... It seems like things have taken a turn for the better now. It looked like they were going to have to stay outside without a tent or anything. And this nice man has invited them in and given them something to eat and shown them hospitality. Apparently all is well. Now we're in verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of this city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. So this is certainly a dark and startling development. It appeared that everything was fine, and now there's a homosexual gang rape mob on the outside that are demanding that this stranger be thrown out of this house where he is being hosted and given to them so that they can gang rape him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. This is a very difficult and strange passage, and there are several things that we ought to deal with here now. First of all, the incredible depravity of this passage harkens us back to the time in the book of Genesis when the nephew of Abraham, Lot, had gone and lived in the city of Sodom. You may recall that God had decided to destroy Sodom for its wickedness, and he sent two angels to the city to check it out. And when it got to be evening... And those angels that were going to warn Lot were lodging in his house. 
a homosexual gang rape mob were demanding that they be turned out of Lot's house and released to them. And that's when the angels struck those men blind in that case. But that was Sodom, a city that God had wiped out for their wickedness. And here we are in one of the Israelite community cities in the tribe of Benjamin, and they don't seem to be any better than the people of Sodom. And then to placate the mob and to avoid having to release his guest to them, the man suggests that they take his virgin daughter and the man's concubine. So we can see that women were very much viewed as second-class citizens. And I suppose that the man was desperately trying to choose what he thought was the lesser of two evils. He wasn't willing to sacrifice himself. He wasn't willing to do whatever it took to protect all of the people in his house. He just wanted to protect the man. So there are a lot of problems here, and none of them are pleasing to God. But we continue with verse 25. But the men would not listen to him, so the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. So apparently somehow the host's virgin daughter was spared, and the crowd was satisfied to have this woman thrown to them. And what happened to her that night is too awful to contemplate. But she was killed, and she may have died of a heart attack. She may have died of hemorrhage, but whatever it was, it was a painful and humiliating and awful death where she was treated worse than an animal. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. This is almost too difficult to believe. So he was interested enough in this woman he had taken for his wife, although she was just a concubine, that he made a long trip back to the home of her father to try to convince her to return with him and continue the marriage. But now, after she's been abused all night, when he opens the door and sees her there, not even realizing that she's dead, all he says is, get up, let's go. The callousness is beyond comprehension. She may have been naked. She may have been filthy dirty with torn clothes. She may have been bloody with cuts and gashes or bruises. But he doesn't seem concerned. He apparently doesn't even touch her. He just wants her not to make him late for where he wants to go. But then he realizes that she's gone. And something begins to change. This is what we wanted to get to in the story. This is what's so important and so very fresh and relevant for today. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. 
Everyone who saw it said such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. Can you see in this passage that Israel has backslidden a long, long way from what the Lord prescribed for them as righteous conduct in the Torah which He gave to Moses. And they let it go in their complacency. But with this woman's death and with this very carefully thought out and definitive act of this husband to cut up her body and send the parts to the 12 tribes, people are beginning to wake up from a long, long slumber. The man himself first, and now all of the people who are horrified by the sight of this strange message package that a servant has brought to them. Can you see in your mind someone like a town crier that this man has sent as his servant is going into one of the tribes of Israel and he's saying, hear ye, hear ye, message, come and see. Awful thing has been done in Israel, come and see. And a group of people begin gathering around, and maybe he takes the burlap off of this piece of the woman's body, and people are staring at it, wondering what on earth it is. And when he tells them that it is a woman of Israel, they are wide-eyed, and they have almost nothing to say. Now we're in chapter 20. Then all the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba, that means from the northernmost part to the southernmost city, and from the land of Gilead came out as one man and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their place in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 soldiers armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So as they are awakening and assembling and unifying and realizing that something has to change, they want to know more. They want to realize how far they have slipped So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine, and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Now all you Israelites, speak up and give your verdict. All the people rose as one man, saying, None of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now, this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go out against it as the lot directs. We'll take ten men out of every hundred from all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred from a thousand, and a thousand from ten thousand, to get provisions for the army. Then, when the army arrives at Gibeah in Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for all this vileness done in Israel. So all the men of Israel got together and united as one man, against the city. Where was that outrage the day before 
or the week before or the month before. Isn't it interesting that this man was willing to let the whole thing go when he thought that his concubine had survived the night? When he saw her stretched out on the threshold of the house as he opened the door, he wasn't going to say any more to her than get up and let's go. And it appears that the whole trip to go and get her had been mostly all about him having a good time with his father-in-law. And we also know that that terrible thing that happened with that group of men in Gibeah, that hadn't developed overnight. That was something that was probably generations in the making as people let their morals slide further and further down. The tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now surrender those wicked men of Gibeah so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. You see, it's finally gone so far that people have awakened and realized this is not sustainable and it cannot continue. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 chosen men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So isn't it interesting that the people of Benjamin are absolutely defending these wrongdoers and they are not going to turn them over and they don't want to see justice done and they are willing to put their lives at risk to make sure that these people who are capable of this awful murder and this terrible sexual depravity be allowed to go on without accounting for it. So now we're at verse 17. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fighting men. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, Who of us shall go first to fight against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. So they have 400,000 against 26,000. And they have the Lord's approval and direction, you would think this is going to be an immediate slam dunk victory. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. But the men of Israel encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord. They said, Shall we go up again to battle against the Benjamites, our brothers? The Lord answered, Go up against them. Well, this is certainly a very surprising and unfortunate thing. They thought they were going to have an immediate victory, but instead they lose 22,000 men. What could possibly be going on here? And they ask the Lord if they're supposed to go up again the second day. They have all of these men that have to be sent home to their mothers or their wives and children in body bags. 
And the Lord says, yes, go up again. Now we're at verse 24. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time, when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. Are you tracking with me here? That's a total of 40,000 people of that 400,000 men that Israel had put together. Do you think it's possible that when you let evil build up time after time, generation after generation, and you don't oppose it, that it gets pretty strong, and when it comes time to try and push it back, it's maybe a bigger task than you had expected? Then the Israelites, all the people, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we've got people who are really seeking God, and these sacrifices appear to be repentance for the past. And we have people who are fervently seeking his face. Verse 27, And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days the ark of the covenant of God was there with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, Shall we go up again to battle with Benjamin our brother or not? The Lord responded, Go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Why did God let 40,000 men lose their lives when they were on the right side of this conflict before he gave them victory? Maybe it was because they had allowed this to go on for so long. Then Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. They went up against the Benjamites on the third day and took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjamites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before, so that about 30 men fell in the open field and on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. Perhaps some of them were thinking, oh no, here we go again. The priest that we inquired of yesterday said we were going to have a victory today, but now this is just like yesterday. What are we going to do? While the Benjamites were saying, we are defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. All the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and the Israelite ambush charged out of its place on the west of Gibeah. The 10,000 of Israel's finest men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjamites did not realize how near disaster was. The Lord defeated Benjamin. Did you catch that? It doesn't say that the Israelites defeated Benjamin. It was the Lord before Israel. And on that day, the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords. Then the Benjamites saw that they were beaten. 
Now the men of Israel had given way before Benjamin because they relied on the ambush they had set near Gibeah. The men who had been in ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out and put the whole city to the sword. The men of Israel had arranged with the ambush that they should set up a great cloud of smoke from the city, and the men of Israel would turn in the battle. The Benjamites had begun to inflict casualties on the men of Israel, about 30, and they said, we are defeating them as in the first battle. But when the column of smoke began to rise from the city, the Benjamites turned around and saw the smoke of the whole city going up into the sky. Then the men of Israel turned on them, and the men of Benjamin were terrified because they realized that disaster had come upon them. In other words... It was time to say to the evil that had overcome for so long, your number is up. So they fled before the Israelites in the direction of the desert, but they couldn't escape the battle. And the men of Israel who came out of the towns cut them down there. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily overran them in the vicinity of Gibeah on the east. 18,000 Benjamites fell, all of them valiant fighters. As they turned and fled toward the desert to the Rock of Rimmon, the Israelites cut down 5,000 men along the roads. They kept pressing after the Benjamites as far as Gideon and struck down 2,000 more. On that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. But 600 men turned and fled into the desert to the Rock of Remen, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. Wow. Finally, a wonderful defeat. And then we get to Judges chapter 21, and we see how God also has in mind restoration and renewal. We will skip some of the verses in this chapter. Now the Israelites grieved for their brothers, the Benjamites. Today one tribe is cut off from Israel. They said, how can we provide wives for those who are left since we've taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? So they instructed the Benjamites saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you sees one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin, and when their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us the favor of helping them, because we didn't give wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath because you did not give your daughters to them. So we now see that Benjamin has no women to offer the few hundred men of Benjamin that are left, or not enough women anyway. And so they come up with this ingenious plan to have the men come to a place where the people are feasting and the women are knowing ahead of time that they're going to be in the vineyards dancing. And Perhaps the women were even tipped off that there were going to be some men coming up there and that they should expect to perhaps be approached about marriage. And 
whether you believe that this was exactly in the best interests of the women or not, we at least see that the intent was to restore the tribe of Benjamin to some semblance of normalcy after this awful judgment. This story doesn't get brought up in church very often because it's so harsh and so strange, but it does have four main parts that are very similar to the things that go on today. First, there is the complacency and the backsliding that allow a people to wake up and realize that they're just completely and totally down in the moral mud. And then there is a decision to do something different and go another way. And then there's this marvelous revival as evidenced by the 400,000 men from all around Israel coming together like they were one person. And then there is a very hard-won victory. But we have to see that this hard-won victory required seven things. The first thing was the awakening. If you look in Judges 19, verse 30, they said, such a thing has never been seen. You know, when the man with the body part for that particular tribe arrived and he was crying through the streets of the town, come and see, and relaying to them the message, they were shocked. Sometimes we need to be shocked. It gets so easy to let things go a little further and a little further, and then you wake up and see that you are so far from where your ancestors were maybe just two generations ago in what you hold to be righteousness, that it's sad and shameful. But awakening, that's the first thing that hard-won victory requires. The second thing is that it requires unity. The Lord desires unity among His people. Remember, the church is the body of Christ, and the body responds to the direction of the head, and it works together in harmony. And so it was very important for them to all decide, we have to put an end to this madness. No more. They've crossed a line. We now understand that we have to do something together. So hard-won victory requires an awakening and unity. And then thirdly, it requires determination. For all this vileness, they said in Judges 20, verse 8, they realized that if they didn't make a decision that was a strong decision led by an absolutely resolute leader, that they were never going to have victory. And then, when the victory didn't come immediately, and it was very costly, they went to God in prayer. That was something that I'm sure had been missing for a long time. And they were not only calling on His name, but they were weeping. So do you see the fervency? Do you see that the deaths of all of those soldiers on the first and second days caused a terrible grief and a, a fervency in prayer. And it took away their appetite for the things of this world, like a meal. And they were leaving off food to just call on the name of the Lord. Can you see them 
maybe tearing their clothes on their knees or on their face on the ground, calling on the Lord with a loud voice. So the hard-won victory required awakening and unity and determination and prayer. And fifth, it required perseverance. Not just one day of hard fighting, not just two days of hard fighting, but three battles on three days. And those were exhausting battles. We have to decide at some point when evil begins to take over our culture that enough is enough and we are going to stick with this battle until it's won because it is according to the will of God and we must see it through. Hard-won victory requires awakening, unity, determination, prayer, perseverance, and sixthly, sacrifice. 40,000 men on the right side of this battle lost their lives. The Lord could have simply said, battle be won, and they could have skated in without lifting a finger, but He required them to sacrifice 10% of their fighting men. Oh, are we willing to sacrifice for the cause of righteousness? We are not called today to physically combat other people in our search for the victory against evil. The Word says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, and it also says that we don't fight against flesh and blood. So this is a spiritual battle, but it may cost you some time, and it may cost you some fasting, and it may cost you leaving off some other things that you think are pleasant and good. Finally, the last part of this, which is highlighted in the 21st chapter, is the beautiful and wonderful restoration. After the battle was won, they didn't just leave their brothers there with no way to rebuild their tribe. They said, what can we do to provide these men that are left with wives? Is that because the men that were left deserved it? No, it was grace. And so there was judgment and there was battle, but then there was also mercy and grace and restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation. And all seven of these things come together to make a real victory over the things that had piled up for so long that were so displeasing to God. And so I think this very hard story in Judges 19, 20, and 21 is a wake-up call to America today. We have let things go for too long. We need revival. We are going to have to confront our spiritual enemies and pray against all sorts of moral depravity, injustice, violence, sexual immorality, lying, cheating, stealing, idolatry. Let's say return to biblical values. And let's see what God will do when in our determination we become part of the army of God's people that are willing to fight until the battle is won. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. 